Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Welcome back to the Disney Specials, guest starring Daniel Floyd of Extra Credits. On this episode, we are still in the 80s with The Great Mouse Detective and Oliver and Company. This was the tail end of Disney's foray into the mice and the cats and the dogs that dominated the period after Walt's death, but before the 90s renaissance. Disney Pictures. It's adventure. We've got a moment to lose. It's excitement. And it's coming your way. It's the adventures of the great mouse detective. Smile, everyone. He's Basil of Baker Street. Amazing. And he's teaming up with Toby, Dawson, and little Olivia to take on Rattigan, the world's biggest rat. When did you call me? You're a slimy, contemptible sewer rat. This spring, you're invited to join the fun with Walt Disney's classic, The Adventures of the Great Mouse Detective. Now, in the UK, this is called Basil the Great Mouse Detective. Now, he's called Basil because Sherlock Holmes was once played by Basil Rathbone. This is the equivalent of there being an animated mouse version of Sherlock Holmes made in, say, 15 years' time called Benedict, the Great Mouse Detective. <laughs> or Robert Downey Jr., the Great Mouse Detective. Uh, just briefly on my part, I didn't grow up with this one. This was another one of those ones that I kind of um, noticed that it was around, but didn't really uh, ever get to, to see all that much. I'm not sure I would have loved it had I gotten to, and so I came to it late. Um, Dan, how about you? I actually like this one quite a lot, especially compared to the film we just finished talking about. That'd be the Black Cauldron. Yeah. Because boy, this sure feels like a bounce back after. (laughs) It (laughs) feels brief, at least. I actually like this one just just genuinely. Like I did grow up with this one a little bit more, but and it's still like obviously not perfect. It's not up to the heights we're about to get to, but like I love Radigan as a villain. Because he just oh, completely <laughs> steals the show. It's a sense of humor, theatricality. Yes, but of and, course, he's Vincent Price. Yeah, and he just Vincent Price being show. Vincent Price. <laughs> but but I, <laughs> I love having that the elegant, charismatic theatricality coming out of this mm. huge framed mouse in a suit. I, I mean, it's established that he is a rat because Lyra assured me that he was a rat. He's so freaked out by it when people call him a rat. It's yeah, there is this big ongoing joke that everybody knows he's a rat, but he claims to be a mouse, and because they're scared of him, they go along with his fantasy yeah. that he's a mouse. But then, having said that, I used to keep mice when I was a kid, and we had one that, that was ate the huge. others and it got huge. <laughs> no, 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 he didn't eat anybody, but he was big, and he did actually look like he could feasibly have been a mouse crossed with a rat, but the size difference between mice and rats usually is massive. I mean, I like Mancini's score for this as well. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of really great themes. I love the um, I mean, the main theme for the Great Mouse Detective. I, I like a great deal, but also the um, much more subdued, subtle stuff he does at the beginning of the inside Big Ben clock tower fight. I really like as well. Some great kind of uh, 
percussive strings stuff happening in there that's really nice see uh, i thought this was just disney going let's take the works of sherlock holmes and we'll just turn that into a mouse adventure this was actually a, a series a book called basil of baker street by eve titus where she did that for them back in uh, 1958 yeah so this this um it wasn't just them disneyfying it it came from a book that's true pretty much everything from the point where basil and dawson are put in radigan's death trap through the entire rest of the big ben fight i really just love as a climax to the film mm-hmm. i the uh the escape from the death trap is a great little sequence the uh everything about the big ben fight is very the threatening and dangerous and big feeling and that and radigan completely lets loose and goes full sinister monster rat mode yeah and it, <laughs> When he runs around on the inside of Big Ben, that is, that's eye-popping uh, CG of, uh, or uh, use of computer-assisted animation at the time. Yeah, yeah that, this being the first big use of uh, CG for a background set as well. Like, mm. Despite the fact that this was made on a really low budget, because after the colossal failure that was Black Cauldron, Eisner yeah. wanted the team to start be forced to work lean again. As I said but, before, it was $24 million originally, and Eisner said, could you do it on 14 You're going to do it on 14 yeah, but still, nope. it looks it looks better than Cauldron does. Yeah, considerably. Yeah, well, it's consistent. There's, there were times when we were watching Cauldron when Sharon actually went, "Ooh," because it looks like they'd taken tracing paper and stuck it on a lavish background, and it just was popping out, and it was so ill suited. Yeah, but ultimately, I like it. It's still very much a Disneyfied kind of a Sherlock Sherlock Holmes type story. But I think all the elements are there and working. I mean, it works for me. I'm interested to see what you guys think of it because, I, I don't know, maybe a British perspective. I'd never really been into Sherlock Holmes. Then I saw the Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes in 2009, I think it was, uh, very shortly afterwards, followed by Sherlock. So I was suddenly, I love Sherlock out of nowhere. So I'd never seen you know, Peter Cushing as, as him. I'd never seen Basil Rathbone as him. This one comes along, and it's like a nice version of it. He's a nice. I mean, he's he obviously doesn't really like kids, but that's the extent of his um, sociopathic behaviour. They can't really do go full homes on this guy. After you've seen Cumberbatch play him, it's kind of like uh, the Gurgi performance of Gurgi in Black Cauldron relative to Andy Serkis's Gollum. The other thing is that when Basil's talking. When Sherlock talks and goes like like super uh, o- like OCD, what is it like like his high functioning brain goes on? You got boom 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 boom, and everything he's saying actually makes sense mathematically speaking and like it scientifically speaking, and it whips by. When Basil talks, he's just saying the angle of the trajectory multiplied by the square root of an isosceles triangle, mumbling, dividing Guttermeg's principle of opposing forces in motion, more mumbling and adjusting for the difference in equilibrium. Dawson, at the exact moment I tell you, we must release the triggering mechanism. Square root of an isosceles triangle is like, this just means nothing. But obviously that's fine for kids, it's just, it's just clever words. But when, as an adult watching, I'm like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. Sure, but I mean, to be fair, we are quite happy to put up with Sherlock going into his mind palace and just twitching for a while to come up with something. Like, I don't know, it doesn't feel any more offensively to like intelligence in either case it is definitely a much more soft like friend like mm. family friendly level 
interpretation of oh, Sherlock yeah, Holmes. But for being that, I think that it's actually of, pretty successful. The other thing that kind of bugged me was that when they, they switch out the Queen Victoria mouse, and it seems like Rattigan's had all her beef eaters replaced. There's other people that work at the palace. It's not just beef eaters and Queen Victoria. What about all the like the, the people who run the palace? Would they not go, well, that obviously that robot clockwork mouse that dives into the uncanny valley attached by a bungee extension cord and back out again that's not going to fool anyone for two seconds uh, it, it just it's it's they, they built Rattigan up to be this genius but his plan is bonkers he's genius but he's also I, I don't know the fact that his that he decides that for his grand entrance on the for his big plan, covered to in bust out, yeah, covered in gold and robes and just extravagant craziness. Yeah. I just love that, like, he is obviously not a very real grounded type genius villain. He is... He's he only is, a genius because every other mouse is stupid. He's Bond-level kind of yeah. uh, villain. He's just big, large, I've set up an elaborate trap and a musical song I record. Like, I love that he recorded a song just for his <laughs> elaborate trap for Basil, just to mock him t- until the song was over. Yeah. I, I, I love all the personality they get into him. I find it entertaining, but uh, especially in context, knowing what film with this just came after. Of course, yeah. But, oh boy. I think this might be a Winnie the Pooh situation for you in this way. It might be. Like I, I'm, I, I can understand why. I think for all the films of this entire little streak of the ones we're talking about here, I can understand why any given person would like or dislike most any of them, except for Black Cauldron. I can't figure out how anyone would really, really get into that one. Oh, the other thing that I... I it's really hard for me to like not. Well, this is me watching this fairly new. Uh, same as with The Rescuers. I'd never really seen this. Um... I can't really forgive and forget about and just sort of sweep under the carpet characters that refer to themselves as evil. So when you've got that song, oh, Radigan, oh, Radigan, you're the evilest of the evil or something along those lines, it's perfectly paralleled with Gaston. Only the Gaston song, everything about that tells you everything you need to know about Gaston with everyone saying nice things about him. No one sings a song about how evil they are. So it's kind of like I was holding this fun little mouse film to account uh, and, and, and holding it in ridiculous comparison with actual Sherlock Holmes and actually how Moriarty would behave if played by the character on BBC's Sherlock. So it's, it's unfair of me to do that. But at the same time, it's an adaptation of the same work. It is still, but I think for Radigan's, I mean, obviously Radigan is no Moriarty and especially no BBC Moriarty, mm. but that he is, I don't know. I've, most villains... I would say, yes, if you just make them straight up, I am evil, and mm. then celebrating my evil, that can just fall into just being really Although dumb and stupid Although the fact that it's Vincent easily. Price... But yeah, but Vincent... But Radigan would do so that. evil. <laughs> yeah, Radigan <laughs> would do... Like, his theatricality and his humor, he would totally do that. That's... I, he, I think he's a villain that can do that. I think Maleficent can do that, and I think especially well, for Radigan... she evil, does she? Well, she goes like, oh, it's a disgrace to the forces of evil, sort oh, of. Oh, God, she does. She's, she's totally, yeah, like, I am the devil. She- yes. To give you guys some perspective here, we recorded this before the live-action version of Maleficent came out. That's how long we've been preparing this series. Like, she's got those bumbling guards, and they're like, we looked in every cradle, and she's like, oh. 
And she, she's like <laughs> Hades in a kind of, <laughs> yeah. you looked in every cradle. Girl's going to be 16 years old right now. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, she so, is, actually. Well, if you do surround yourself with bumbling creeps... What do you think you is going to happen? Nobody else will work for them. <laughs> From the brain that brought you the Big Ben caper, the head that made headlines in every newspaper, and wondrous things like the Tower Bridge job, that cunning display that made Londoners sob. Now comes the real tour de force. Tricky and wicked, of course. My earlier crimes were fine for their times, but now that I'm at it again... And even grimmer plot has been simmering in my great criminal brain. Even meaner, you mean it. Worse than the widows and orphans you drowned. You're the of the worst around. Oradigan! Oradigan! But it hasn't all been champagne and caviar. I've had my share of adversity, thanks to that miserable second-rate detective, Basil of Baker Street. <gasps> For years, that insufferable pipsqueak has interfered with my plans. I haven't had a moment's peace of mind. Oh. <laughs> But all that's in the past. This time, nothing, not even Basil, can stand in my way. All will bow before me. Orion! Orion! Your tops and the tassels! the world's brightest rat! What did you call me? Oh, oh, he didn't mean it, Professor. It was just a slip of the tongue. I am not a rat. Of course you're not. You're a mouse. Yeah, that's right, right, a mouse. <laughs> yeah, a, a big mouse. Silence! Even louder, the shouting. No one can doubt what we know you can do. You're more evil than even you. This is an oddity for me because um, when I was a kid, right, I remember having uh, the uh, Pan and I sticker album. Panini. For, but, Pan <laughs> seriously, and I. is that how it's pronounced? Panini? Yes, okay, panini. fair like enough. The br- like the sandwich. The Panini sticker album, as of the Great Mouth Detective, um, I had. This was actually my first proper introduction to Sherlock Holmes. Of course. Um, it would have been a lot of kids' first introduction. It's Lyra's. Indeed. And that's, again, I wish it was better and much closer to our Sherlock because it's going to be a long time before I can really show her any uh, a more in-depth version of Sherlock. So it's kind of like I wish they pushed yeah, it. Yeah, it is. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll, I'll show her um, 2009 shot. Do you know what she'd love? Robert Downey Jr. as Sherlock 
and Martin Freeman as Watson because she loves The Hobbit. So those two together, you got Iron Man and The Hobbit, she'd love that. She'd watch it no matter what it happened. Yeah, you may be right. But, but she doesn't know who Jude Law is much. I suppose if I showed her AI or Lemony Snicket. But you're never going to get to see him that much. Anyway, no, carry on. Um, but, yeah, so th- when I watch it now, there are bits of it that I really like, but then there's great swathes where it's just, again, mice in clothes doing things. The fact that one of them Scrooge McDuck helps. As in Olivia's father? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. fair point. And I, and I do burns. I do like um, Olivia, squeaky voiced though she is. For some reason I find her less irritating than I do Penny in um, The Rescuers. Well, technically the whole voice cast is excellent. You've got uh, Barry Ingham as Basil. He, he's exceptionally good with the uh, material he's given. And uh, uh, Val Bettin as uh, Dawson. I didn't really twig this until I saw the two of them talking on camera about how passionate they were about this project. And I was like, oh, actually, they really work in uh, for who they are. Yeah, I Terrible. agree. I really like Dawson in, in mm. this. Oh, see here. This young lady is in need of assistance. I think you ought to listen. Well, this, please, Doctor. Of course. But, good. Uh, uh, wait just a moment. How the deuce did you know I was a doctor? A surgeon, to be exact. Just returned from military duty in Afghanistan. Am I right? Uh, 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 yes. Major David Q. Dawson. Uh, but how could you possibly... Quite simple, really. You've sewn your torn cuff together with a Lambert stitch, which, of course, only a surgeon uses. And the thread is a unique form of catgut, easily distinguished by its peculiar pungency, found only in the Afghan provinces. Amazing. Actually, it's elementary, my dear Dawson. That was amazing. You think so? Of course it was. It was extraordinary. It was quite extraordinary. So what do people normally say? What do people normally say? Piss off. Mm. But some of the um, some of the uh, animation play almost that they do, uh, like the bit where they're going through all the, the toy shop and you've got all of these hideously scary Victorian toys <laughs> leaning out over the mice. They managed to get in Brilliant. a Dumbo I reference. I love that scene. They managed to get in a Dumbo reference and a Pinocchio reference there. Yes. And you've got all these um, sort of scary dolls and scary clowns and um, and things like that. And, and the whole it scene... It feels like a Sherlock Holmes great. Um, story. Yeah. Definitely. So it doesn't really diverge from the source material, or even though it is adapted from the source material. Uh, by the way, I just have to interrupt myself for a second to say I am really sorry for my constant interruptions in this episode. This is terrible podcast etiquette, folks. I, this was years ago, but I was... I, I knew better than that by this stage. But they overwork the bat as well, though. There's too many times when it's like, what's round this corner? It's the giant bat, who reminds me of Bartok, who was in uh, Anastasia, a Don Bluth film, and then later in Bartok the Magnificent, a spin-off of Anastasia. I also like the fact that there's this um, steady theme of uh, clockwork that runs throughout this one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And um, it, it, sort of from the very beginning, you've got this idea of uh, them making things that are supposed to work like clockwork, but things kind of fall down around their ears, um, which I, I don't know. Also maybe... emphasizing the countdown to the disaster that Rattigan is trying to make unfold. Well, indeed. But for, for me, I, maybe I'm looking for things which aren't even 
really hinted at being there, but the fact that of when it's set, you're looking at the sort of the deterioration of the British Empire and things starting to come <laughs> That's down. That's exactly what they were thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that was there for me anyway, so maybe that's part of the appeal. But. Oh, and the other thing. Did anyone else get really uncomfortable during the strip show? Yes. That is a little bit weird for a... Uh... It doesn't need to be there. It I does mean, not. This is like two years before uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which where Jessica does a really sexy uh, uh, strut and song, but it's not a strip show. And also part of the joke is... This one's like is... a mouse... And she's taking off layers of clothing for the titillation of the male mice. I mean, there's sort of a, a modesty curtain at one point, but that's what she's doing. It's that she actually implies at one point you're going to get to see her mouse tits. <laughs> Dearest friends, dear gentlemen, listen to my song. Life down here's been hard for you. Life has made you strong Let me lift the mood With my attitude Hey fellas, the time is right Get ready, tonight's the night Boys, what you're hoping for will come true. Let me be good to you. You tough guys, you're feeling all alone. You rough guys, the best of you sailors and bums. All of my chums, so dream on and drink your beer. Get cozy, your baby's here. You won't be misunderstood. Let me be good to you. Hey, fellas, I'll take all my blues. Hey, fellas, there's nothing I won't do just for you. Oh, very generous. Your baby's gonna come through. Let me be good to you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Speaking of tits and mice, uh, there was a single. Okay, there were two frames that were troublesome in The Rescuers. Do you remember this one, Dan? Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd heard about this. The theatrical edition of The Rescuers had two frames of a woman at a window, like a photograph of a woman at a window with her boobs out, but they were played uh, once and then uh, taken away and then once again during 30 frames per second. Like, so quick, not even a hummingbird could catch Tyler at work. But it was there, and they had to recall a lot of uh, prints from the theatre because they wanted to restore people's confidence in Disney. So that's a problem. And then they went and put a goddamn mouse strip tease in Basil the Great Mouse Detective. So, well done. Good thinking. Do we think it Disney is-, is conflicted on the revealing mouse issue? <laughs> <laughs> I think if you work with mice for long enough, 
you start, they start to, to become attractive. Well, no, <laughs> this is what I was going to say. The the whole point of Jessica Rabbit is that the the gag is that the human men who are attracted to her feel slightly uncomfortable about the fact that they're attracted to her because ultimately she's a tomb. She's a tomb. Yeah, what a lucky Goyle. We got to talk about that. <laughs> We're almost to it. The, the film's original title was going to be Basil of Baker Street, of course, named yeah. after the, the original book series. But um, I so know Disney marketing. I know where you're going to go up to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go for so it. Disney marketing felt that the title was impossible for them to work with. Or and by Disney just, marketing, you mean Michael Eisner? For, well, I mean, their marketing department would have been like working on this, but with Eisner there to like for them to lend an ear to their claims he would have been he would have been much more likely i think than previous leadership to make the call on this he but, was in uh, his office and he was making them sing songs about how evil he was <laughs> he could celebrate it uh but so it ended up getting changed to the great mouse detective and the filmmakers of course were pretty upset about that and one of the animators and this is totally something an animator would do in a in amongst a team of other animators who felt angry about some decision made higher up uh, he anonymously circulated a forged office memo from studio executive that's supposedly from studio executive peter schneider this is like 80s twitter by the way it kind of is yeah declaring that all previous disney features would also be renamed just to follow the pattern so from seven little men help a girl to robin hood with animals to puppies taken away to aristocats that one's gonna stay the same to the girl with the see-through shoes. Music with pretty things to watch. <laughs> the funny thing is, though, that like that is still how Disney actually names their features. Like, okay, so like Rapunzel and the Snow Queen sound a little too fairy tale and princessy and girly, and and, and which makes them worry yeah. that young boys won't go to see it, and they are they do kind of buy into that theory that like you can get girls to go see a boys film but you can't get boys to see a girls film and it's dumb but whatever but they but so they rebrand the films tangled and frozen and they make trailers that highlight the comedy and the action and all the kind of princess story element stuff just kind of it's in the film but you they don't advertise it so it is still what they do i mean it was a joke back then but it is really still what they do i said before how um I said like in a previous podcast how Roger Rabbit was the movie that ended up saving Disney animation around this time and kicking off the Disney renaissance, but I, that was actually oversimplifying it. It was really three movies in a row that saved a Disney. First was this one, because it was a hit, and they really needed a hit right about now to keep from getting shut down, so this kept the lights on. Second was Roger Rabbit, which was a really big success, and it reignited audience interest in the golden age of anima- animation and perfectly primed audiences for the third one, which would be Little Mermaid, which would kick off the Renaissance big time. Do you want to go into this one first? It's Oliver and Company from 1988. For over 50 years, Walt Disney has turned great stories into unforgettable animated motion pictures. Whoa, 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 back up. Walt Disney, not the company, Walt himself, has been doing this for over 50 years, including 21 of those which he was dead. And he's been converting books and stories into unforgettable animated motion pictures. Like Oliver and Company. 
Now the tradition continues as Walt Disney Pictures proudly presents a new twist on the classic story of Oliver. A pussycat? Come on, let's eat him. I love a story with food in it. Oliver, the little orphan who fell in with Fagin, the Dodger, and a gang of canine con artists out to take New York for all it's worth. It's worthless. What kind of work do we do anyway? Investment banking, man. <laughs> Stop, thief! Let's get out of here. Oliver. The heroic kitten who was catapulted into a whole new world. What is the meaning of this? Ultra Jet. I see you met Oliver. The little furball. Only to be rescued Oliver! by his gang of friends. I just want to go back. Back with his Uncle Tito. Walt Disney Pictures presents our 27th full-length animated motion picture, featuring songs performed by Billy Joel, Huey Lewis, Ruth Pointer, and Bette Midler. Your family is cordially invited to meet our new family. Oliver, Jenny, Georgette, Tito, the Dodger, Fagin, Rita, and Sykes, the vicious villain determined to destroy Oliver. They're all together in a holiday entertainment event you'll never forget. Absolutely, positively. Walt Disney Pictures, Oliver and Company. First, they had to This was a remnant that they wanted to put out. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> Carry on, Dan. Uh, yeah, but... Okay. I get a sense watching from these last few films that there's sort of a... There's not necessarily a B team of the staff in Disney, like, making... Like, there's the main guys, all the talent is working on this one film, and then there's a little B team, smaller group, working on one of these other features to fill the gaps. Because I know that a lot of the a lot of Disney's top people were still working on this, but it does feel like there's sort of a B-level production always happening and a big production happening. Like uh, the Black Cauldron obviously was huge money spent, but ended up kind of being the Black Sheep production and a lot of people moved on to Great Mouse Detective. A lot of talented people moved from the Great Mouse Detective straight to working on The Little Mermaid, but then Oliver and Company was also being worked on. So I don't know, it, it feels like a... B level, less confidence, less money put into it, sort of production. But I don't know. I kind of I like aspects of it, like like with a lot of these. It's some parts of it are really successful, and other parts don't work nearly as well. I like the feel of New York City that they managed to capture. Um, the the fact that they made so much effort to make it feel contemporary, um, unfortunately, results in it now feeling very dated but I I don't know that I do enjoy the song still they're still super catchy despite being kind of cheesy 80s I don't know what genre is this this Billy Joel-ish I should keep I saying really, positive things before the damn breaks should I? On your own this one. Dude, <laughs> that's okay keep going Dan because uh, this, this is a film I want we hate movies to cover Okay, I, I will get as much positivity in as I can before yep. this happens. Okay, so I the songs themselves are pretty fun and catchy to me, just because it just because it really feels '80s, and there's not a whole lot of these Disney films that actually feel terribly '80s as you go through them. There's not a lot of Disney films that really where you really feel the era that much. I, the Rescuers, you definitely feel it in the music and the tone, and this one, you definitely feel it in the music. Uh, the choice to make it a musical in the sense that the dogs kind of sing and dance around does not work for me. That feels that just kind of amps up the cheesiness, but the songs themselves I find catchy enough. Um, 
I like Fagin as a character, and I wish Disney used Dom DeLuise more often, but I guess Bluth was using him every single film, so he was busy. Uh, <laughs> Do you notice he kind of stands a bit like Roger Rabbit? He's got the sort of, he's bottom heavy, and his shoes and, and, and legs feet. go out in the same way. And he's got that, uh, you can practically have him voiced by the same guy. Please, Bill, you gotta let me <laughs> off on this one. Come on. And he animates like it's like his center of mass is in his knees, so his knees lead like mm. every move that happens, and the rest of him kind of drags and follows. And it's he's very toony. He, he very much is super toony, but I, I don't know. I like him. He's appealing enough. Uh, Sykes and his Italian gangster dogs have some of the most violent on-screen deaths of any Disney villain to date. So that's that's <laughs> just remarkable. crushed by a train. <laughs> yeah, electrocuted on tracks and just smashed by a train. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh I would I actually want to also compliment Disney animation in general. In fact, if they were to rename this one, they could just call it Smashed by a Train. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want I do want to give Disney Animation credit in this era because they were by this point using 3D elements a lot in their backgrounds. Like all the vehicles in this and the buildings and some environments were entirely 3D. The the railway chase at the end, lots of 3D elements there. Uh-huh. But they use it very smartly. A lot of, like, you look at some other films of this era, you look at Anastasia, there are certain shots where it's very suddenly, whoa, 3D environment, hey, <laughs> like, it, you feel it, it's very, it's very noticeable when yeah, it suddenly Anastasia switches to a 3D 97. set. Yeah, I know, and it was later. Yeah, but um, later, yeah. But they actually use it in a way that you don't feel the 3D for the most part in these, like, the they animate the the cars and the buildings and everything else are framed and kind of played much the same way they would be, but they have just used 3d tech to like be a bit more efficient and allow it to re- allow the, uh, those solid shapes to retain their volume. Cause that, cause animating a car, like driving away in perspective by hand, it's really hard to do. And it looks and it. It'll look, start looking really wobbly. Just the tiny imperfections in the lines will start really making it f- lose its feeling of a big solid mass shape but um, the choice to do that stuff in 3d and to to integrate it in a way that doesn't call tons of attention to itself Mm. but it still looks like it could have been drawn by hand just by someone who's really really good at it like uh i I appreciate that they were actually able to do that it makes these films not date okay they're dating horribly because of the music and a lot of other things but they're not dating horribly because of the cg integration which is (laughs) which is a triumph in the 80s uh I'm, oh. Hang on, what else? Uh, there is a scene in this in which Oliver walks past several pairs of feet um, and one of them is wearing a pair of high-top white trainers <laughs> with leggings tucked into them. Nice. 80s. That could yeah. have been you. <laughs> <laughs> he also walks past somebody who's got a boombox and they're dancing away to the, the, the sort of the new kind of hip-hop rap that people are listening to, all these kids these days. It's almost like as soon as that cardboard box breaks apart, uh, Bolivar could have started busting some sweet breakdancing moves and maybe drawn a crowd. Which song did Howard Ashman write? Because he did write something for this. He did. Hang on. Uh, it's got to be um, the one with uh, New York City, surely. It's, that's the only one with a bit of... Um, emotion to it uh once upon a time in new york city yep that's the one that's good call i love me some howard ashman oh yeah
once upon a time in New York City. It's a big old battle, tough old town, it's true. But beginnings are contagious there. They're always setting stages there. They're always turning pages there for you. Ain't it great the way it all begins in New York City? Right away you're making time and making friends. No one cares. I'm just about to so you guys can go ahead and there is well, let's start the hammer. There is a narrative dissonance in playing that song while the, this thing's going on for, for Oliver. It's like uh, having a song at the beginning of Ratatouille when Remy's getting swept away in the sewer. And it's like, once there was a rat. Like In fact, there would, it would just be <laughs> Randy Newman going, once there was a rat, he liked to cook. And like, if that, like, got swept into a sewer and... <laughs> 
And like it's it's really jarring because like all it really needed at that point was dramatic music, so you really feel the cat. But because I, I I love the song, but because it's happening over that scene of drama, it mitigates the drama. It almost dissipates the drama. It's like Oliver's gonna be all right despite these trials he's facing. Almost like you're not actually watching it in real time. It's a memory that Oliver's uh, going through, and he's almost singing to himself. And it, it gets really confused. And that's the beginning. The, <sighs> it's so obnoxious at times with the New York. And when Billy Joel wasn't cool then, he's really not cool now. (laughs) So when he turns up and they're like, well, we've got to get the coolest guy in the world, Billy Joel. Yeah, he can sing, but can he act? No, he can't do either of them. And there's a point where, like, Dodger comes along and you're like, hey, yo, kid. And this is the bit where it comes on all rude dog on the dweebs. Balls against this. I'm a sneaking in people and scoping a scene, you know, comping a major dude. When I cut loose this bunch of dweebs, whoa, I've been trying to teach him some rude. Not dog, that is. Yo, dudes, get rude. Hey, yo, dudes, get rude. And there's a point where he clatters into a street vendor, and Sharon said, is this dog going to end up wearing sunglasses? Yes. And within a second, he had sunglasses on his head, and he's singing this. You want to Come and get him. Uh-huh. But I wanted you, kid. One minute I'm in Central Park. Then I'm down on the Lancet Street. What the song i'll give it that and at the end sharon you were singing it too i was, I was. <laughs> oh my god See, it's catchy it, they're catchy that's like but, the, mu- the musical numbers and the choreography catchy and what's like happening maybe yes well, well yes so then we go back to to the oliver's crib and then oh, oh, right this is a charles dickens book and it's about 
how badly children are treated in Victorian London. And much like um, The Christmas Carol, it's trying to raise awareness within the rich community of London. Oh, hey, maybe we shouldn't say, are there no workhouses for these children? So obviously transplanting that to the, the plight of a cat... And then you've got, like, this incredibly poor cat and this incredibly opulently rich girl, and there's no point in the middle. Uh, Because this is kind of, like, part and parcel of the the Oliver story, but in the original story, it was, um, obviously, with it being a a kid, it's related to his actual family. And, uh, like, like, was it Sharon that his grandfather finds him? Uh, If I remember rightly, and I could be completely wrong on this, and I apologise if I am, but, yeah, he's stuck in this orphanage because his mother married somebody inappropriate ran off with him um then he i think the husband deserted her and then she died in childbirth or something like that but oliver ends up being rescued from the orphanage by his own grandparents right but they scrapped that because they were going to have penny from the rescuers be this little girl but then they scrapped penny and brought in jenny can you see what they were doing with their scripts for this meeting (laughs) It just required a quick biro scribble out to turn pennies into jennies. And then suddenly it's an entirely different, exactly the same character. Um, But again, this is in a world where cats and dogs talk to each other, but not to people. (sighs) Um, The the point when we get back to all of these kids... Sorry, they're, they're kids, they're dogs. And you've got the British stereotype dog, and you've got the Mexican stereotype dog. And, um... Yeah, you get to know them for about three minutes, and then there's an alien reference, which I suppose you pointed out that, that kids wouldn't get that. I pointed out that kids would kids would laugh at, ah, it's an alien, and adults would laugh in, at, ah, but it's a reference to the xenomorph alien. So already you're on slightly uncomfortable um, Madagascar and Shark Tale-style territory where they're trying to sort of, um, like, uh, overly uh, ambitious winks at the parents. Yeah, but we when meet... there's only one, it really sticks out. <laughs> we meet Fagin, and three seconds later, he is imperiled by Bill Sykes. We don't know Fagin. We 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 want, you know, if there's going to be any peril, it's going to be uh, Oliver that, that's put in it that we actually care about. Maybe one of these dogs we've just met. But we've literally just met Fagin, and he seems like he's sponging off these dogs. They seem to care about him, but, like, there's no, like... Robin Hood, what a crook! Gave away what he took. Charity's fine. Subscribe to mine. Get out and pick a pocket or two, you. Got to pick a pocket or two, boys. You got to pick a pocket or two. You got to pick a pocket or two. You don't get characterization for this guy before he gets put in peril. And the whole kidnapping plot and subplot, it's rushed through really quickly. This incredibly obnoxious song by Bette Midler halfway through, it's the Meryl Streep song from Death Becomes Her. I see me, I see me. Actress, woman, star and lover, sister, sweetheart, slave and mother. She's doing Liza Minnelli, but without the irony. The irony there is that it's a poodle doing it, not a person. But it's...
think they're depending on Oliver way too much to be the source of all your characterization. So you're but supposed to. But he's voiced to... by Joey Lawrence. There is that. There is that, and that's a big thing. But he's basically you're supposed to um, feel sympathy for Fagin when he's threatened by Bill and you're supposed to empathize with Fagin or at least like him because the dogs like him and you're supposed to like the dogs because they've rescued Oliver and you're supposed to like Oliver because you've seen him get drowned in a cardboard box but they haven't really rescued Oliver he sort of found them and they've allowed him to stick around it's about that, that yeah. that's sort of a moving like that part of the f- the plot moves forwards, but then gets abandoned when they try to boost a car stereo. Like, the dogs are trying to steal car stereos. You said yourself, Sharon, how do you get dogs to steal money? Indeed. I can understand them getting dogs to steal food, but anything beyond that seems a bit... And it's not working very well. They're stealing hair dryers and rubber ducks. That's what he's trying to give Bill Sykes. This is not a good business plan. <laughs> Not really. So it's the whole thing is the same ludicrous leaps of logic as Basil, but again, I, I shouldn't care about. I should just go. Oh, it's a fun little kids film. But then again, I shouldn't go. Oh, it's just a fun little kids film because this is supposed to be Disney doing more than that. Now Joe Raft worked on this, and I love Joe Raft. Um, and actually, there are many bits which make I, I feel like maybe Joe had some part of that. It feels a bit like the Brave Little Toaster at times. Dan, you get that? Yeah, there's a little bit of that vibe in it, for sure. You know, in the kind of the way that the toaster falls in with uh, all of the other um, uh, household ornaments. The one person that's missing. If John Lovitz was in this film, that would have elevated it immediately. (laughs) Interestingly enough, Cheech Marin was very entertaining. Even though he's a racist stereotype of a Mexican, he's basically reprising the role of that chihuahua from Lady and the Tramp. The whole thing felt like a sassy new 80s version of Lady and the Tramp and everything that that implies. Now with 80% more sass. (laughs) But that's the thing. They were like, let's bring it right up to date. And it was for about three hours and then suddenly it dated. (laughs) Thoroughly poochified. To give you an idea... Oh, God, they poochified Dodger, (laughs) my God. To give you an idea, though, of how... Sunglasses at some point. How little I was engaged with this film. I spent 15 minutes wondering if Jenny was the first young girl I'd seen in a Disney movie with pierced ears. So we're being, like, super critical of this thing. It doesn't really deserve it. The fact that it got Disney, was it like, uh, it got them $74 million. So obviously it was doing something right. Another huge thing, it brought songs in. They hadn't really been singing before. They needed something that would open the door to the Broadway musical. Now, if if that required it to be a New York uh, story where they were sort of, like, you know, that people would burst into song every now and then. And if Bette Midler's odious, uh, although slightly catchy, uh, song <laughs> about herself being fabulous and perfect um, would, you know, w- was what helped that grease the wheels, then thank God it existed. Yeah, it really was. It's a stepping stone on the way toward greater things. It's, <laughs> I, I can't, like, I. I'm saying positive things on it because I can find positive things in most of these Disney films. It's it's certainly not a favorite. I don't hate it, but it's and I don't love it either. It's it is okay. <laughs> Dan, you are the nicest guy in the history of the world. You truly are. <laughs> yes, I I said Oliver and Company was okay. Give me a medal. Rather than the butler being played by a sort of a Winston type person, he should have been played by John Lovitz. 
I like watching WWF wrestling, which is trendy <laughs> right now. That would have been awesome. Oh no, Jenny's been kidnapped. Back to the WWF. Oh, the uh, what's the other song? The um, actual like sweet little one, the girl singing. I guess Good Company. Yeah. That one, that, that one I actually quite like. I like the score that uh, when the kind of the the orchestra takes over for it later as well. It's definitely very like very sweet and cloying. Yeah, but still, it's a uh, uh, this is a, this is a film full of music that you enjoy despite your best efforts. Oh, the other thing is just like with Basil, uh, the uncomfortable like discussion about crime that Sykes is getting into. He's like, yeah, he's got half a phone call, and it's the most terrifying phone call ever. He's like, yeah, you gotta you gotta break the knuckles off. Yeah, put him in a concrete overcoat, then you toss him over a bridge, and you're like, are the kids in the audience not traumatized yet? Because they should be. Uh, speaking as a mother, I find this inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> It was released the same day as uh, Don Bluth's Land Before Time, and I've heard conflicting accounts over which one was the box office frontrunner. Wikipedia says Land Before Time won. I've watched another documentary that says Oliver and Company won. I expect they were pretty close. Yeah. Either way, that would have been a good double bill at the cinema. Go see see the cats and dogs talking and then go see the dinosaurs talking. From this point forward, um, Schneider had declared that Disney's goal was to release a new feature every year, which they've mostly kept up with. Uh, Anybody named the two years they didn't up to now? Uh, if you give me a minute to go to Wikipedia. Oh, <laughs> top of your head. I have no idea. 1993 was The Lion King. Sorry, 1993 before The Lion King in 94. Okay. And 2006, there was nothing then. Okay. But ever since then, I mean, this is the halfway point. This is number 27. And then if we include the, um, the, the one that's going to come at the end of this year... Uh, Big Hero 6. There you go, folks. We recorded this in 2014. Where to date your show, Alex? That's number 54. So we're, we're talking, yeah, we're halfway. All right. What was the 2006 release then? If No, the... there wasn't a release in 2006. Sorry, the 2007. It went Chicken Little in 2005 and then Meet the Robinsons in 2007. So... The reason that there was a delay with The Lion King was because they were putting all their effort into one of the best films they've ever done. And the reason... And the reason for the delay <laughs> between Chicken the, Little and Meet the Robinsons was because really, they were going, what the what? hell are we going to do? Are we going to do? <laughs> and then they got the A team on Meet the Robinsons and the B team on Bolt. Ugh. Okay. Right. Let's talk positives because at least at this point, like... Disney animation staff was being bumped up to several hundred strong again. Oh, we've yes. been down in like a hundred or something for a while during these lean years. Product like uh, Katzenberg and Schneider were investing a lot of money in the studio and trying to get new technology in, in there for the first time in ages. And I mean, things had definitely changed oh, forever I, with these new executives in there, but the studio and the studio was really feeling the fire being lit under them. But a lot of positive, like the artist, the young artists had gained a lot of valuable experience since the Black Cauldron. Uh, like new talents like Howard Ashman and Alan Minkin were being drawn into the studio. Mm. Uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit had renewed audience interest in classic animation. So the stars were pretty much perfectly aligning right about now for See, greatness to happen. Here's my positive about Oliver and Company. This to me was the Nadia 
of Disney, it couldn't get any worse. The only <laughs> place they had to go from here was up. And boy, howdy, did they go up from so here. this is worse than the Black Cauldron? Yes. Absolutely. Whoa. This the the uh, the. I'd say obnoxious though this is. It's still bouncing back in the right direction from the Black Cauldron. Uh, the Black see, Cauldron for is me, so far removed from anything that was successful. I, I think for me, the, the animation. The, there's bits of animation in this that are so subpar, it doesn't even look like Disney. It could just be the DVD, and we've been watching most of these in in Blu-ray, but a lot of it does look unfinished to us, Dan. It looks roughly equivalent to me. But it, I don't know, it's not ne- nearly as uh, eye-catching as some of the stuff in... Like, Great Mouse Detective has some really great animation in it. And obviously what we're about to get to next time has some of the best animation Disney ever did. Oh, yes. I think it's, it's some of the early frames, particularly some of the New York crowd scenes, they look really rushed. Um, like they just they haven't really bothered filling people's faces in properly. You've got eyes, nose, and a mouth, and that's it. Um, there's, there's nothing really to indicate that that's a, a drawing of a human. I've just realized, Sharon. Carry on, Sorry. Okay, I was wondering if that was a failed attempt at... Um, trying to keep like human faces vague kind of sort of Charlie Brown adults sort of situation, but then maybe, maybe it just did not work and it just ended up looking weird and non-human. Possibly. I think it's, it's maybe the inconsistency then the fact that they didn't continue with that through the whole thing just made it look like that was an accident. Sure. I mean, it could be, maybe this was rushed. I mean, we're going, we're getting to annual releases now and sure they're ramping up staff, but that doesn't mean, I mean, the people, the Disney artists during this whole era and the renaissance as well were were like living in the studio working crazy hours they were they were worked very very hard so yeah uh, maybe, See, and, think, and, if and they were building at, up to a much bigger better thing too so they might have kind of rushed on this one if you look yeah. at the hot dog guy yeah i stole some links from him hot dogs <laughs> when you look at the hot dog guy um he, he's like he's completely different to everyone else in the film. His face is all over the place. He looks like something out of a Ralph Bakshi uh, cartoon, mm-hmm. um, or possibly again the, uh, the, uh, that might have been Joe Raft. It just it looks different to everything else. His yeah. his his face is unstable. Is the best way of putting it. Yeah, I know. I, of, I know what you mean. Like there's a there's inconsistency to how stylized the human characters are, and I mean that happens in other movies too. But yeah, like Fagin. And Sykes and the and the hot dog guy are very stylized in a lot of different ways. And then you get Penny and the butler and Jenny. most every other human. And Jenny, whatever. And you, <laughs> <laughs> and you get and they are all quite normal, natural kind of a uh, the rescuers era looking human uh, human characters. So yeah. there is some weirdness there. I I think what I find frustrating about it is that uh, the. When it comes down to it, for me, the Black Cauldron looks like some people tried really, really hard on a lot of aspects of it. Um, not so much the story, but the animation side of it. it. It just looked like they'd at least put efforts into it. This over-animated looks, rather than under-animated. Possibly so, but this to me looked like they hadn't tried, and because I know that, of course, they tried because. No animator goes into a film thinking, oh, I'm just going to dash this out on the back of a napkin. It'll look fine. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it's kind of frustrating to me that that doesn't come across. It definitely is not as 
I mean, even, yeah, Great Mouse Detective is a better looking film. What is about to come later is a much better looking film. It does feel like a noticeable dip in visual quality. And uh, it's much simpler design. There's not, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of ambition to it. So even though I think like in terms of the craft of animation, a lot of it is still very much uh, of the quality level that I would expect from Disney. Just the look of it, ultimately, it does look cheaper and it does look simpler and like less just less time and attention was focused on it. And I wish I actually knew production wise why that was. But no making of materials, so we'll never know. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the only things that were making of were like Oliver and Company is the new movie from Disney Pictures. And it's it's really like it's it's got this dodgy kind of like um you know, Disney have managed to do fantastic, wonderful films for 60 years, and they're not stopping anytime soon. And it's like, it literally says at some point, and they don't seem like they show any sign of slowing down. Now, at that time, we knew they were about to enter their heyday, but also at the time, they had been, they were down. They were, they, they were, they had been bleeding. So yep. they, a, a lot was ri- riding on uh, Oliver and Company. And then they mention, um, that it was hand-drawn and animated, and somebody scornfully says, you know, it's, it's, it's hand-drawn, you can tell, and computers are never going to replace that. And it's like, okay. And then a two, two, couple of years later, you got the Rescuers Down Under with its CAPS animation, where it, it's it, you, kind of they embraced computer technology. And we, we already know that Oliver and Company included various computer-assisted shots, like the, the, the vehicle sections. Uh, so, again, it's like they're, I'm getting mixed signals here. Like, yeah. uh, when they're using computers and they want to use that as a selling point, they say, with the latest of computer technology, uh, when they're, they're using hand-drawn animation and they want to emphasize the fact that it is done by people, they point that one out. And if it's both, they get confused. <laughs> and they can use both and, uh, and try to sound like they're, they're committed to that one. That's, that's another reason why I'm doing these shows, because when you watch the Disney stuff, a lot of the time they rank all of these films together and people are very diplomatic about them. No one ever says this one just failed like a turd. No one ever says that. <laughs> no one's ever unabashedly because what they're talking about, usually almost everyone speaking in these things works in the industry. And they're, if they disparage one of these earlier films, they're disparaging everyone who worked on it. And so it's a very actionable position to be in. And I completely understand why you wouldn't want to badmouth somebody else's work. But it requires some honesty, which I don't usually hear about Disney. Because people always tend to have an agenda. They're either trying desperately to, uh, uh, to overplay Disney's uh, qualities or they, they have an anti-Disney agenda. Yeah, it's, it is telling that there are so few bonus materials and behind-the-scenes things to be found in this particular era just because there's not a whole lot of that positivity really to highlight i went through all eight dvds and uh, blu-rays today this morning um when we got up and before sharon and lyra walked out the door about an hour and a half after i started we'd watched everything and we were just watching musical bits there was there's just almost nothing and it's a shame because i i honestly think that a a frank documentary about the nightmare that was the Black Cauldron would be fascinating in comparison to its actual film. I totally agree. And I expect somewhere down the road, once a little more time has passed and and just there's once there's a bit more distance from it, I expect 
more either either in subsequent releases uh, re-releases of these disney films did you more just say subsequent materials? with subsequent <laughs> in that i did well gosh hold on let me try this again are you reading no oh, okay. i was just talking <laughs> and, I, and i think i and i think i mispronounced that word all the time that's a typo I expect with subsequent re-releases of these films, uh, just a diamond edition Blu-rays and all the and all the other stuff that happens when these films come out of the vault again, mm. they always seem to need to come up with more bonus material to put on those discs to justify re-releasing them. And I expect the further we get away from these films just in time, the more of that stuff might be that disney might be willing to let come to the surface it might require a future generation to talk about it once everyone else has died who is in any way connected to it it must have passed out of living memory or it may require a waking sleeping beauty dream on silly dreamer level outside documentarian going in and trying to unearth the facts about this point of disney history because 44 million that doesn't disappear like that that's got, to, that's got to involve a lot of meetings, a lot of clashes, people getting fired. Um, I, I, I don't have the least bit of uh, schadenfreude of watching that. I don't like seeing conflict like that. But at the same time, I do concern myself with the truth of things rather than enveloping myself in uh, a warm, fuzzy blanket of wouldn't it have been lovely if. There's a lot to be learned from watching something go horribly wrong and being able to figure out what it was exactly that caused it. It's nice. It cautionary tales only work if you know what happened and what went wrong. Yeah. <clears throat> I just remembered when uh, we were talking, uh, when we were watching Oliver, um, I mentioned that Howard Ashman's thing about uh, the in the first act, you always get a uh, the, the your lead female singing a song about what she wants the most, and it makes you root for that character. And I said, and in this one, we get Bette Midler singing about how awesome she is. But of course, it's not. It's the Once Upon a Time in New York City song, but Oliver can't sing it himself. He has to have someone else sing it for him. And I'd argue probably the uh, Good Company song is probably filling that role a bit more, even though it's not coming from Oliver. It's more from Do you know whatever what her name is. Bette Midler. Do you know what? The- <laughs> Penny. Jenny. Whatever. Do you know what this film really needed? A duet. Billy Joel and whoever they got to play Oliver, maybe not Joey Lawrence from the TV show Blossom, um, doing like Oliver singing, I want to come with you. Nah, get out of here, kid. Da-da-da-da-da-da. Get out of here, kid. Just da-da-da-da-da. So you, <laughs> and then eventually well, Oliver's like, okay. And then he slinks off and Dodger goes, oh. And then Dodger starts to die inside, but then puts a front on and comes back and goes, hey, yo, kid. Uh, come, and then that makes up some excuse that allows Oliver to then follow him. That's not actually what happens. Basically, Dodger's like, get this kid off my back and I'm going to get back home. And Oliver, through his own wherewithal, but silently, uh, f- you know, just keeps following after this guy. There's no characterization for Oliver aside from the fact that he's just, he's got nowhere else to go. That's true. That's definitely true. And this this film is a musical, much much more so than most any Disney film has been for years preceding it, yeah. but it is, it's not like a Broadway style musical. It's, it's got some songs in it again. Yeah. Well, that's it's the really, thing. it's the- really not until Ashman comes into creative control on the songwriting front yeah. that really you start getting Disney films that actually have that Broadway musical flair and pacing and energy. Yeah. Did he work on Lion King? Cause otherwise, or, or Aladdin. 
Aladdin, yes. Aladdin was actually his more his uh, passion project, and they were trying to salvage Beauty and the Beast, and they yanked him on to, to help with that. Gotcha. But uh, no, but he, but yeah, he was gone before Lion King, and that one. Uh, mm. He that was, was gone before cool. Aladdin, wasn't he? Uh, yeah, before Aladdin was released, he worked on a lot of the songs, but uh, yeah. but yeah, but with Lion King, they just got fortunate enough that Hans Zimmer kind of came onto the scene, and Elton John wrote some great songs as well. And My God, that Lion King score! I was listening to it today; it's still so it's wonderful. amazing, right? Hans Zimmer can really—he's got like a main line to my heart. <laughs> yeah, that I have to check. That might have been his like first big splash, like on the film composition scene. That might have been kind of what. Initially he had made done big. Rain Man before then, but okay, uh, he, so, he was right, doing so. things like Black Rain uh, before then, and uh, and smaller sort of thrillers and dramas. Gotcha. Okay. Days of Thunder, Backdraft, True Romance, then The Lion King. All right. Well, All awesome films. I haven't seen Black Rain. Can't say. But Days, are you really Days of Thunder awesome? I'm being ironic. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, this is I came up with this on the uh, forum. It was it wasn't so much uh, descriptive titles that would uh, um, describe exactly in a few words exactly what happens. Um, Basil the Great Mass Detective is pretty self-explanatory, but in the t- in the same vein as Tangled and Frozen, just single words that would sum up a very very important aspect of the film. Um, Apple, Snow White. Yep. Nose, Pinocchio. Ears, Dumbo. Slipper. Yes. Cinderella. Delusion. Hang on. They're in order. Oh, Alice in Wonderland. Yep. Narcolepsy. Sleeping Beauty. <laughs> Ab- abandoned. Um, uh, it could be Aristocats, but it's uh, Oliver and Company. Uh, yep. Yep, jump forward. Legs. Uh, Little Mermaid. Yes. Nice. Trousers. Hercules? No, no, no. Um, Tarzan? Trousers. Technically, he does wear a suit, but it's not the trousers that are the important thing. I suppose you could call it Trouser Envy. Oh, Mulan. Yep. Uh, My favorite one is Destroyer. Lilo and Stitch? It is Lilo and Stitch. (laughs) Isn't it great living on an island with no major cities? Um, and my favourite, actually going back before Lulu and Stitch, Regicide. Oh, Lion King. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else to say about this period? They survived it. That's the important thing. They came out the other end, and like I said, the stars were about to align perfectly. For a, ser- for a length of about five years. But before we enter this hallowed era, we are going to have a prologue episode to showcase some of the very best music from the upcoming movies. And for that, we shall require the return of a little musical podcast series called The Sound of Gonzo. Be here next week when my guest will be James Batchelor. Thank you.